Next week, over 100 million Americans will vote to elect the next president of the United States. After a year of political turmoil, mass protests, and a pandemic that drove daily life and the U.S. economy to a halt, many are now wondering, will the electoral process go smoothly, or does 2020 have another shock in store for us? This is Caitlin Phillips with the Oxford Comment. The topic of voter fraud and electoral meddling has been at the forefront of many conversations over the last four years as the attempt by Russia to sway the 2016 election and Donald Trump's electoral college victory and popular vote loss are still vivid memories. How will this year's election go? Are foreign powers trying to sway our election again? Is mail-in voting safe from meddling? Will fear of COVID-19 decrease voter turnout? Our episode today features interviews with scholars who specialize in electoral intervention, voter turnout, and voting laws. They answer our questions about voting and offer solutions for the safety and security of this election and elections in the future. Our first guests are Carolyn Tolbert, professor of political science at the University of Iowa, and Michael Ritter, assistant professor of political science at Washington State University. They are co-authors of the book, Accessible Elections, How the States Can Help Americans Vote. Hello and welcome to the Oxford Comment. We're here today with Caroline Tolbert and Michael Ritter. Uh, Caroline, would you introduce yourself for us? Yes, um, I'm Carolyn Tolbert. I'm a professor at the University of Iowa, and I have been working um, for a long time in elections, campaigns, election reform, um, state and local politics. Happy to be here. Thanks. And Michael, will you introduce yourself for us, please? Uh, yes, uh, I'm Michael Ritter. I'm uh, an assistant professor of American politics at Washington State University in Pullman. And I teach and conduct research in the areas of elections, voting, uh, election administration, state and local politics, parties and campaigns. Excellent. Well, we're very glad to have both of you here. Uh, so let's, let's jump right in. Uh, unlike in previous presidential elections, um, this is one that we might not know the results of the election for weeks because of so many cast by mail votes. What kind of lessons do you think we can learn about with mail-in voting from your work? Carolyn, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Accessible Elections, the book project that Michael and I have worked on, evaluates the effect on voter turnout and campaign mobilization of many different election reform laws including all mail voting and absentee mail voting. States like Oregon adopted by ballot initiative all mail voting back in 1988 and the first all mail elections were conducted in 2000. The state is really efficient at conducting mail voting elections. They have the procedures in place to seamlessly and quickly conduct mail voting elections. Colorado similarly has been conducting all mail elections for many years now and um, is very efficient at it. What, what we will see, though, and one of the effects of the pandemic is that it forced many states to move to mail voting in a rapid way. I think 83% of Americans are eligible to cast an all a mail ballot in 2020. Many of those states that don't have all the procedures and administration in place. We have different bets. Most people I know think that by three weeks after the election, we will have a result. Actually, most people think by two weeks after the election, we will have a result. We are expecting, though, that there will be, there may be some 
election administration challenges in states that aren't used to using this type of election system. And I actually think in the long run, more states are going to move this way because our research suggests voter turnout can be higher, it's much less costly for the state, and it can be more efficient. Michael, what do you think? I, I largely agree with uh, Carolyn's points uh, that she made. Indeed, we show in our, in our work that uh, mail voting and absentee voting, where the regulations are very lenient and accessible, we show that turnout tends to be higher in those states. We also show that turnout among such groups as racial minorities and poor individuals can actually be increased uh, with mail voting. And I think an added ingredient of importance, and Carolyn touched upon this, is that mail voting and absentee voting tend to be most effective in states with more accessible election administrations. And for mail or absentee voting, that includes procedures that have to do with vote counting and has to do with uh, well-trained poll workers that conduct that counting and so on. And regarding uh, the expectations for the election, you know, in, in most cases, mail votes are not all counted the day of the election often, and it's typical uh, for the counting process to go for a week or two after an election. But I think voters should have confidence, especially in the states that have had mail voting a long time, that there's well-established vote counting procedures to make sure that mail ballots or absentee ballots are accurately counted to protect election integrity. And as we've shown our research to make uh, mail voting accessible. So basically providing individuals an alternative way to vote that that either just permits them to vote or actually makes it more likely that they will vote during the, the particular constraints during this pandemic that are imposed on the voting process. Michael, one of the things that I just will jump in here that I'm realizing is that one thing that could really help in 2020, which I don't think is necessarily happening, is that the states that are experts at mail voting like Oregon and Colorado should really be sharing their tricks of the trade and the the way that they process the ballots with the other states that don't heavily rely on this method. And I'm not sure if there's as much sharing of intelligence among election auditors and election officials that they should be. I hope that there is because we have a lot of experience from the states going into 2020. Yeah, indeed. I think data sharing uh, policy diffusion are both both useful mechanisms. I think I think states that have recently adopted absentee or mail voting or are considering doing so should look at Washington, Oregon, and Colorado as examples. But we can see examples of diffusive or dissemination opportunities in such institutions as the Election Assistance Commission through the federal government, whose job is to basically provide election administration throughout the states. And basically using that as kind of a source of information for election administrators and how they can optimize mail voting, absentee voting, and other election procedures, and also academic uh, research institutions such as the MIT Election Data and Science Lab, which uh, publishes and basically has an informational resource known as the Election Performance Index, which basically uh, ranks states on the basis of how accessible their voting systems are independently of voting laws. And basically, the Election Performance Index is also used by election administrators to give them ideas on how they can basically update their election systems to make voting more optimal, including mail voting. But I, I think I agree with Carolyn that definitely we live in a day and age where it's very important that states with the 
latest voting developments in terms of making voting accessible and of high integrity need to act as models for other states, basically to make sure that, you know, individuals in all 50 states have similar levels of accessibility. Now, you both have uh, mentioned election administration, which I don't think is something that a lot of people understand what it is, what it does. So what is election administration um, and then how does it shape the voting experience? Michael, why don't you start with this one? Well, election administration can uh, basically encapsulate various minutia of the voting process, but it can include how voters are registered in a state, how ballots are counted. Uh, It can include such factors as polling place access or polling access for disabled citizens. It can involve things like waiting times at, at the polls. It can include whether a state or election jurisdiction makes information on ballot casting and polling place locations available online or not or easily accessible. Also can include variation in voting machines. We have variation in voting machines often down to the county level, often within the same state. We can have variations in ballot design even within the same state that can impact the likelihood that somebody will be able to vote or you know that somebody's vote will actually be counted or not. Basically, election systems that have those elements of election administration that are more accessible to voters, it it enhances the likelihood that people will actually be able to vote. For instance, let's suppose you live in an early voting state with high quality poll workers that can help you out, that have high quality voting machines, have well-crafted ballot designs. Those factors make it more likely that people will be able to early vote in that state rather than an early voting state that has election equipment of lower quality, more poorly trained poll workers, and so on. And so basically, in this research, we're showing that these voting laws do matter, that they can have an impact and they can increase turnout. But we're also showing that the election administration context within these laws operate also matters. That's great. And and I think part of it is that the whole debate, the national debate, the, the debate on social media, often focuses on voting rights with very concrete kind of what people will focus on, you know, can you cast a mail ballot? Is there same day voter registration? Is there automatic voter registration? But actually there's what, when you start studying election administration, you realize there's a whole myriad of laws and rules and variations underneath that can really affect how likely is it that people can vote? In fact, I believe that the MIT Election Lab just published a report saying that your probability that your vote gets thrown out through a mail ballot is about 3.5 to 5%, that there's something wrong, the signature's wrong, the birth date's wrong, something's missing, and that that's a fairly high rate. And we're going to see that it may be lower in 2020, it may be higher, and it should vary across the states. And I was just going to give an illustrative example because in the news right now, obviously, is the passing of the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she was really an advocate of voting rights, more than probably any Supreme Court justice that we've had for a long time. And on case after case, she sided basically with how do we expand voting rights in the states. And it was fascinating to read some of these cases, states like Rhode Island that required like an affidavit or two signatures in order to get an absentee mail ballot. And that was a case before the Supreme Court that Ruth Bader Ginsburg decided on. So lots of laws, many that are arcane or outdated. And again, I think part of what 
accessible elections is trying to say is that some states have really been innovators. They've led the way, not just in the voting laws themselves, but in all of these practices that are what is part of election administration. Think of a parallel might be all the practices in a hospital that nurses and doctors go through for safety, all these things that people don't see in in the public eye. Anyway, Stacey Abrams really took the lead in publicizing the importance of election administration in the 2018 election, and she gave voice to this as a, an issue that we hadn't seen before. So, Carolyn, you mentioned earlier that we're now up to 83% of Americans being able to uh, send in the, that mail-in ballot. Do you think that voter turnout will be higher? And do you think voter turnout of perhaps groups that don't necessarily vote uh, in big swaths, right? We know that older people will vote. We know with college-educated will vote. But do you think now with something that is more accessible, right, comes straight to your home and then you can send it back, do you think voter turnout among people who don't aren't normally, you know, voters um, will be higher. What do, you, what do you think, Carolyn? So the conventional wisdom before Michael and I undertook this project, Accessible Elections, that really is based on catalyst data, which are the national commercial voter rolls, much larger samples of data than most people work with because it's not survey data. It's actually the voter rolls and it's for all the, you know, 240 million adults in the U.S., but also includes vote histories. So we're able to have a type of data where we can see people's behavior over time. And before our work, people generally, the consensus was that mail-in voting, absentee voting helps demographic groups that were most likely to vote anyway. So older people, partisans, more educated. And what I think our work was able to show was that, and especially in certain places and certain groups, mail and absentee voting can help increase turnout among all these different demographic groups. And it can even help the most disadvantaged groups, groups that are poor, below the median income, or minority groups in some cases. And so I think part of our work is that that mail voting, if done correctly, can actually really increase turnout. And also in 2020, it's really up for debate right now, but I was just reading Michael McDonald, the U.S. Election Project, and there are some people who are estimating that turnout in 2020 might shatter all records since 1908. They're expecting there may be massive turnout in 2020. So I don't know. <laughs> and obviously, I think they're estimating actually that 40% of the public will cast a ballot via mail and 60% will still be in person. So even though 83% are eligible to cast a mail-in ballot, I think we're still going to have more in-person ballot casting than mail ballot, but I'm not positive. That may even be switching. We do see some partisan differences. Democrats more likely to say they want to cast a mail-in ballot and Republicans more likely to cast want to cast an in-person ballot. I think uh, that was a very good answer from Carolyn. And regarding the 2020 election, I also anticipate having fairly high turnout. But you also could also see considerable variation across the states depending on the overall accessibility of their election laws and their election administrations, as we've previously noted. For instance, one, uh, one uh, difference you may notice in the 2020 election is that turnout will tend to be higher in states that have more accessible ways of facilitating mail or what's called no excuse absentee voting, basically where you can request a mail ballot, no 
questions asked in, a, in those no excuse states. You could juxtapose those states against states that have more restrictive absentee uh, systems where you're required to provide an excuse or as in the states that Carolyn previously noted or in Wisconsin earlier this year, whereas the state requires the signatures from notaries or witnesses to validate mail ballots. And so I think that type of finding is consistent with the research where we find that states that have individuals who are more likely to vote tend to have more accessible voting laws, whether those are early voting or mail voting or simply having more accessible election administrations. And I think you'll see that variation this election too. What's nice about the, the work that Michael and I were able to do is that we had vote histories from the same individuals. So we could look and see whether somebody, an individual didn't vote in previous elections and then decided to vote and whether the the laws that the person lived in in this, that person's state might have had any effect. And so having data that's over time and being able to look for change within the same individual helps mitigate some of these concerns that previous scholars have had that it's really hard to study state election laws. Because remember, the states are not, it's not like a randomized drug trial where we can randomly give some states certain laws and some states not, and then see if turnout changes. Instead, it's a non-experimental design in that the states are choosing what laws they want to adopt or election administration practices, and then voters are deciding whether to vote. Anyway, so we, we hope that in terms of methods and data, we have a way that might shed light on the promise of, of mail and absentee voting, early voting, same-day registration, and now this new phase, which is automatic voter registration. And that there's a lot of promise to update this whole system and make participation and voting be a lot more common. And the United States has low turnout compared to most industrial countries. I think it's like 25 out of the 35 advanced industrial countries were low. So it'd be better if we got higher. <laughs> so. Uh, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of states are expected to have difficulty um, in administrating the election. What kind of lessons or advice would you like to give to them, you know, from your research and from your book uh, that you just wish you could get to them <laughs> now and say, here's what you need to know. Here's what will make your life easier. Michael, why don't you start on that one? I'd, I'd say the, the advice they could garner from our research is that you need to have well-established vote counting procedures for counting mail ballots. You need to have poll workers that are well-trained in counting mail ballots in a timely manner. States ideally ought to have very clearly available information available to voters about how they can maximize the likelihood, uh, as Carolyn noted earlier, that their mail, mail ballots will be uh, accepted rather than rejected. For instance, one of the basic requirements for a mail ballot to be accepted or rejected is if, if your signature on a ballot matches the signature the state has on record with your registration records. And that's often a reason people's uh, mail ballot is rejected, and that's why the, the concept is known as residual voting rates, basically what, what percentage of all ballots cast are not counted. That's one way of measuring the difficulty people have with mail voting, but that's also the reason why residual voting rates tend to be higher in mail voting states compared to other states because people are not familiar with how to maximize likelihood to get their ballots counted. Basically make individuals aware about how to cast accurate and acceptable ballots and also to basically prepare 
the state infrastructure, such, such as with poll workers, robust vote counting procedures, and so on, to basically to be prepared for what, as we know, is going to be a very high number of citizens that are casting ballots via mail in the 2020 election. Right. Um, and I think we'll, we'll conclude here. Between the two of you, can you give us some of the, the biggest takeaways in terms of like what, what could state governments do to really modernize their electoral process and voting laws and, and just make the entire process easier to do, clearer to do, you know, and, and get that number higher, you know, for election and voter turnout? Carolyn, why don't you take this, the beginning on this one? What's so interesting about this is that the states and local governments really are the ones that have the responsibility for um, setting the rules for voting. And even though all the attention in the United States seems to be focused on national politics and the presidential races and the Senate and the, and the House, really politics in terms of administration of elections is local. And if you look back through the history of the United States, in the beginning at the founding, we had a very small percentage of, of the population that was actually allowed to vote. They had to be male, landowning, white race. There were lots of limitations on, on who could vote. And we've expanded suffrage consistently. There's been a steady marching towards um, more universal suffrage and this expectation that every, you know, most Americans should be able to vote. So the laws in the states are still a patchwork, a zigzag patchworked pattern. Obviously, one thing that could happen is that the, the national government could take elections more seriously and laws could be passed at the national level that could supersede some of the state laws and that could make things more uniform. I know there were debates about adopting early voting nationwide, for example. One of the most exciting new reforms in the states is automatic voter registration. I think we're right below 20 states that have adopted some form of ABR. That allows anyone who interfaces with the government, including Department of Motor Vehicles, to be um, have their information shared with the election auditors and to be automatically registered to vote. Registration becomes opt-in instead of opt-out. You can always opt-out and say, I don't want to vote. But people then would be automatically registered um, and also allows information sharing among different government agencies. So if people's address changes, they don't have to re-register they are registered. And in most European countries, if you're born and get a social security number, you are registered to vote when you become a certain age. So that is one of the most exciting things. And I guess I feel what we need is that most people don't understand the rules of elections. They don't understand how complicated they are and they don't care. And what we need is we need a leader who says, this is something we, we care about and we have to we have to work on modernizing the rules, not only taking the lead from successful states and leveraging this experimentation of the states. It was a ballot measure in Oregon, after all, that just adopted mail voting in 1988 was when the initiative was passed. But maybe it's time for national legislation as well to really secure the rights of Americans to vote. A critical part of protecting a democracy is the right to vote. Michael, what do you think? Those are some very good points, Carolyn. Uh, I would agree uh, that our work indeed shows that uh, convenience voting laws matter, mail voting, 
early voting and same day registration can increase turnout. I would also agree that uh, to point to the future, modernization in our voting system, enhancing turnout across the states could involve a larger role for the national government in, in establishing more uniform voting laws across the states. The U.S. has a highly mobile population and one reason for the comparatively lower turnout, among other reasons, in the United States compared to other established democracies is that citizens may not be entirely aware when they move from one state to another that the registration laws or the voting laws could be different in their new state relative to their old state. And a number of individuals become inadvertently disenfranchised, at least for that election, because they're not aware of the variation in election laws. And there's a long history of attempts both successful and unsuccessful in American history to nationalize uh, voting laws. For instance, during the Jimmy Carter administration, I believe there was an attempt to nationalize election day registration, which allows you to register and vote on the same day. And one of the reasons voter turnout is so low in the United States is that compared to most other countries for the longest time, the United States has basically placed the responsibility for registration on the shoulders of the citizens rather than the state automatically doing it for them. Now, as Carolyn noted, a recent development in elections in the United States and a number of states is automatic vote registration. So we're moving in that direction, but not every state has automatic vote registration. And you can imagine that some states that have histories of not having accessible voting laws, such as states in the old American South, may be less likely to adopt those laws. But basically, I think nationalizing accessible voting laws will reduce voter confusion and also basically enhance the likelihood that people will be able to vote if they don't have the time or if they're not in the right location to vote in person on election day. And I think another point I'd like to address is that we know from our research that states that have more accessible voting laws and more accessible election administrations have campaigns that are more likely to reach out to people to vote. And we know based on research that one reason people vote is because somebody asked them to vote. And if you live in a state with more accessible voting laws, it's more likely that campaigns will reach out to you. And all, all these uh, convenience voting laws and, and this the mobilization that results from these accessible voting laws holds promise not only for increasing voter turnout, but also for increasing how representative is the active electorate. You know, as Carolyn noted earlier, if we go back to the late 1700s, early 1800s, only white male property holders could vote. If you fast forward to the present day, just about every citizen above the age of 18, except for felons and felon disenfranchisement states can vote. And we also know based on our research that having more convenience voting laws and having better election administrations makes it more likely that individuals from historically marginalized groups like the poor, racial minorities, and so on will vote at high rates, and that also has positive implications for creating a more representative American government. Well, I think that's all very sound um, advice and <laughs> something I wish that would have been implemented long ago. This is where I sheepishly admit that um, I moved in 2016 and, and had no idea about registration and so didn't vote in that particular election because I didn't know what I needed to do or how to get back on track. I've since gotten myself free. <laughs> uh, re-registered and, and voted in 2018. But yeah, I mean, I just didn't, you know, I didn't get any ballot. I, I didn't get any information and it didn't dawn on me to to go looking for it, you know. So having some more, some easier access and just making it part of 
the election process, right? Is that everyone gets to vote. Um, seems like something that is a, a no-brainer, um, and yet here we are. It's funny because my daughter, you know, um, was in junior high and high school, and recycling wasn't that common. You know, she had a recycle, and, and it took like a mass media campaign to make people realize that there was a problem. And I think that's part of one of the biggest problems with politics is that there's there's so many rules underneath and rules that we can change and we can make the place better. But, you know, it, it takes somebody that cares. Next Gen America, which was Tom Steyer's organization, actually did more to register young people in America than any organization in modern times. Not a government organization either, a nonprofit, a private group. So thank you all. Yeah, thank you for joining us both. Yeah, thanks for everything. Our final guest today is Dove Levine, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Hong Kong. He is the author of Meddling in the Ballot Box, The Causes and Effects of Partisan Electoral Interventions. Uh, Dov, could you introduce yourself for us, please? Yeah, I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, and I study uh, partisan electoral interventions. All right, so our first question for you is, how common is election interference? I feel like it's something that we're talking about this year, but how common really is it? It's quite common, both in the past and in the present. And according to the data I have collected, there have been at least 117 such interventions between 1946 and 2000, either by the United States or the Soviet Union or Russia. Just to give you an idea about this number in context, this means that it is one out of every nine national level executive elections during this period. And we are talking about interventions of this kind occurred all around the world in 60 different countries, in all world areas except for Oceania. And it continues to be frequently done also, you know, in the post-Cold War era, as well as, you know, before 2016. So, you know, this is not just a Cold War story. And this, as you can understand, is a more common form of phenomena than, you know, interstate wars or covert coup d'etats. So we are talking about one very common method in which uh, foreign powers try to affect policy and the, the leadership in uh, other countries with semi or fully uh, democratic regimes. Wow. Um, so you said 1946 there. Was that the oldest case of electoral interference that you uh, found? And can you tell us a little bit about that case? Uh, no, that is not the oldest. Uh, when it comes to um, interventions like this in general, they go back as early as you can find elections of any kinds. You know, if there were elections for a king in the Middle Ages or for a pope, there were many times interferences by uh, foreign powers. You know, like, for example, the way in which popes are today elected, you know, the papal conclave, or, you know, they lock up all of the cardinals, you know, and things like that were designed basically to prevent, you know, foreign powers from determining, you know, who would be the Pope. And so this is pretty common uh, all the way back to, uh, to the Middle Ages when there was any, you know, semi-competitive election by, you know, any group of people. When, it when we are talking about type of uh, modern era elections, you know, elections where there's a significant share of the electorate choosing, you know, a chief executive, the oldest known case was in the 1796 U.S. Uh, presidential elections. And basically, in this case, the French government was increasingly concerned with the foreign policies of the George Washington administration, 
that it felt was basically violating its alliance treaty that it had at the time with uh, France, so to speak. And they were afraid that, you know, if uh, George Washington would win a third term, then that would lead them to continue violating it. So they decided to intervene against George Washington and when if, if he would try to run for a third term. And when Washington decided to retire on his own and his vice president, John Adams, decided to run instead, they were pretty sure that he would just continue George Washington's uh, foreign policy, which they didn't like. So basically, they then decided to intervene in that election against John Adams in order to assist his opponent from the Democratic Republican Party, Thomas Jefferson. So basically, what they did is that about uh, 10 days before uh, the elections in Pennsylvania, and the French government, under its ambassador at the time to the United States, Pierre Adet, had a diplomatic message leaked to an American newspaper in which it had both a decree and a threat. The decree basically had a restriction on all American trade to Europe and by the United States, by removing the neutral status from American merchant ships. This was an, uh, doing an ongoing war. So this removal of neutral status basically meant that a lot of them were likely to be captured and confiscated. And also at the same time, there was a threat in the decree that if the United States continued its current foreign policy, it would cause, quote unquote, it's the line of neutrality and become France's enemy. Remember, this is the 1790s. France is a world power. The United States is a relatively weak country. So this was a major threat. Then about two weeks later, as the electors in the Electoral College were making their decisions, this was in the era in which the electors in the Electoral College were not bound like they are today, they tried to flip the electors to vote towards Jefferson by the French government declaring a recall of the French ambassador from the United States which in the 18th century was the last stage before, you know, you started to declare war against another country. So this is, to my knowledge, the oldest uh, case of such foreign intervention um, that was done of, uh, of this type. Wow, how, how underhanded by the French. So you talk, so that's, you know, 1790s. How did technology kind of step in and either did it ramp up election interference or, I mean, had it always kind of been at that pace and now they're just a new technique, you know, to, to cause a little trouble? Um, well, I, so naturally we cannot know the future about the use of technology, but so far it doesn't seem that uh, technology is a major factor. That is what was done by uh, Russia in 2016 was basically the digitization of an analog interference method that they used used and other countries have used many times in the past, so to speak. So, you know, in the days before uh, WikiLeaks, um, they basically would, uh, Fan Pals wanted, you know, to uh, leak um, embarrassing or perceived as embarrassing documents before an election, would basically, you know, um, bribe a, a local journalist in the target and, you know, ask them to publish this as a supposed, quote unquote, own expose a few days before the election. And likewise, you know, they would also similarly, you know, beforehand spread fake news in uh, similar manners, you know, and if they wanted to break in, you know, and collect data instead of hacking and uh, into computers, they would many times, you know, either do a physical break in 
or basically, you know, bribe, say, a secretary or someone else inside a campaign to get out for them documents uh, from that campaign. So, so far, there, has, there doesn't seem to be any major effects of the technology on such uh, interference. It's basically old message, just, you know, slightly digitized. In the similar manner, you know, that if you want to say buy a book, for example, for example, my book, you can, you know, order it through Amazon or, you know, go to a local bookstore and purchase it. If you order it through Amazon, you basically get the same book, only slightly through a different message. Now, um, naturally, if, you know, seeing like, for example, um, electronic voting of various kinds continues to become a more and more major method of voting, you know, either online voting or, you know, various types of electronic voting machines, there is a growing threat, as I describe in the book, that that can uh, enable foreign powers to have a whole different form of intervention in which they basically try to determine the election uh, results directly, so to speak. But um, so far, um, the use of technology in such interventions has basically been same old techniques with a slight uh, digital twist. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. I would have thought that technology, you know, would have provided a new avenue. So it's funny that all of they sort of come up with is old tactics, you know, new tools, and that's about it. So tell me, I know that we, you know, you kind of mentioned you can't look into the future, but do you think that there is some meddling already happening or that will be happening in the upcoming U.S. presidential election? Well, um, at the moment, naturally, I don't have the full information, but there is uh, some and growing evidence that Russia is intervening in the 2020 uh, U.S. elections using some of the methods that they used uh, in uh, 2016, so to speak. And uh, what's name you call it? And there's a good reason to be uh, concerned with that electoral intervention, because according uh, to my book, um, such interventions can have major effects on the results, increasing on average the vote share of the preferred side by 3%. And I also find in a different part of my book that uh, this intervention had a major effect on the 2016 U.S. elections and probably gave uh, Donald Trump his electoral college uh, victory. Do you have any thoughts or is this something that you investigate in your book about like what what could prevent, right? What what would be a safe way of holding an election in 2020? Um, you know, we have the technology to do it digitally, but, you know, as you sort of have mentioned, that could be fairly easily hacked. I mean, what is what, what would be the avenue to a, you know, a safe and secure election? Well, uh, I would argue there would be a few methods. First method would be a completely no use of any digital message in order to uh, do any of the voting. In other words, all of the voting should be done through some form or another of paper ballots, either in person or uh, mailed. All of the counting of the ballots has to be done in person, you know, by human beings counting uh, the ballots or at least having one guaranteed manual counting. If you do some quick, you know, electronic counting just to get the results a bit quicker to always have, you know, some manual counting for sure. So that would be one key issue. All elections have to be done through the use of paper ballots of some kind and all counting has to be done through paper ballots. And the reason why is basically that paper ballots cannot be hacked in some way. So as a result, foreign powers would not be able in the future 
to be able to try you know, to change election results through that message, so to speak. The second thing I would include in this regard would be a public education campaign. In other words, educating voters, whoever is not yet convinced that such interference is a very bad idea and it should not be acceptable. You could call it, say, uh, say no to meddling and a campaign like that. And the basic idea would be that basically because such uh, interference is when it's done in public for its effectiveness, it depends upon the public not getting angry at whoever's being assisted and voting for the other side out of an anger, so to speak. And actually, so as a result, what that means is, is that uh, if, if more of the public considers any form of public fund meddling to be an unacceptable behavior, and they, which would lead them to automatically punish that particular side that is benefiting from it, it will tend to discourage such meddling in the future. In other words, when the uh, foreign powers will decide, you know, whether to intervene overtly or covertly, they will avoid overt interventions out of fears of such a backlash. So as a result, it is less likely to be an effective uh, form of meddling and even less likely probably to occur a bit. And finally, I would also increase the penalties for um, quote unquote, what they know now is, you know, cooperation with the foreign power or collusion. And that can make it harder for the foreign power to find the local actors, not necessarily the politicians, but, you know, any third actors who are cooperating on the side as willing to uh, be involved in such meddling. Because if, for example, you make it a punishment that, you know, say life in prison, like, you know, like the punishment for spying on, you know, uh, aiding in some way a foreign intervener, that can make the cost of such intervention too high for any non-political actor that is somehow involved knowingly, and it can lead them to decide not to become involved in such meddling or even report on it to the authorities as a result, increasing the chances that it would fail. So I would basically argue that in my perfect uh, scenario of how to prevent such meddling, again, it cannot be prevented in full, but you can at least uh, make it harder or you know, more likely to fail, you would first have paper ballots and uh, manual counting. You would second of all, have um, a public campaign to make people uh, see any such fun interference as completely and totally unacceptable. And finally, you would, uh, you would create or raise the penalties and such uh, cooperation with a foreign power and such an intervention high enough that any third party that is cooperating with them, you know, any civilians who are by chance getting involved in it in some way would think twice before cooperating with a foreign power. Wow. Yeah. Just some really compelling stuff. I, you know, it's so funny. I feel like a lot of the talk around, um, you know, I said interference in, in elections has been, well, we should go digitize everything and, you know, we should, we should go to the technology. But quite often I feel that the experts have all said, no, quite the opposite. We should all go back to paper. So, you know, it's, it's funny. You, you confirmed what I had already kind of thought. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I was basically whoever, basically computers are like a big machine written hack me, so to speak. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> let's say this way, it's uh, impossible to make them secure, uh, at least in yep. the near future. So, you need to do, you know, voting like it's 1979. Yeah, really, truly. They said it's so funny that I feel like we turn to technology for answers all the time, you know, and, and think it'll save us from everything. But unfortunately, you're right. Like the technology isn't meeting us where we need to be. 
You know, it's like, yeah, sure, you could do elections electronically, but there's no way that you'd be able to secure them. We can barely keep, you know, credit card information secure. I mean, how often are those breached regularly? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if North Korea can hack Sony Corporation, yeah. then no, no data is secure if they have the will and the willingness to invest the resources. Thank you so much, Dove, for joining us today. I really appreciate all of your insights. And thank you for inviting me. We want to thank our featured guests, Carolyn Tolbert and Michael Ritter, authors of Accessible Elections, and Dove Levine, author of Meddling in the Ballot Box, for joining us on this episode of The Oxford Comment. As always, we would like to thank the crew of The Oxford Comment for their continued assistance on each episode. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to The Oxford Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. I'm Caitlin Phillips. Thank you for listening.